I think it's super relevant that you said that you are passionate about climbing, which makes you passionate about route setting, um, because climbing is the reason why, right? It was the starting point. You didn't start um, as a, as a you know, building holds. You started as a climber, and then it brought you into gyms, and it brought you to route setting, and it brought you to this outlet of of, of what you think is important in the sport and is important in the sport, but it, the root is still that we want to go climbing and it's about that movement. And it's, it's, uh, something that really sticks with me is that the environment, you know, so you are describing the environment of, you know, your, a day outside or a road trip or a climbing gym and the environment can create interest in something. If your first experience is excellent, the chances are that you'll go back. If your first outdoor climbing day is terrible, you might go back to the gym. But if you stay in the sport, if you stay climbing, maybe that's the more important thing. And it's the relevance of, you know, what gym you climb in or how often you go or where you go starts to, to fade off from that. If you can stay with climbing, then climbing is the thing that, that creates this unity that we're all, you know, we're all finding our niche or our corner or the thing that we're interested in. Um, and some people are interested in competing and some people are interested in, you know, climbing in the bugaboos and some people are interested in multi-pitch track. Like there are so many layers and, but we're all this same group of people. And I'm sure you've been on road trips to places where the, the campground or the congregation area isn't all the same people. It's not just boulders. It's people that have this experience. And if you listen and pay attention, you're going to learn something about your sport. Yeah. Because of the demographic that gyms bring together, um, if we want climbing culture to stay sound in a certain way, uh, it requires more work. You know, the same way going outside and finding boulders is one type of work. It's hard work but creating good boulders indoors is a, like, is a really intense and, you know, uh, it, we know for a fact, it's not that hard to throw holds on a wall and get people to come in and climb and pay for membership for that. And that's not uh, necessarily um, climbing. It's not because you're pulling your weight up on a vertical wall that you are climbing. Um, so, at least in, in my definition of it. Um, but yeah, that thread is important because of climbing is the thing that takes us places that, that changes us. It changes you as an individual. When you're like thinking about, I can't hold that hold or I want to clip that anchor or it's a very personal uh, process and it's about you know, self-change, growth and um, in a quite important way. And I think it's, if it, it's possible that that fades away from the business of climbing gyms mm -hmm. um, and climbing gyms can remain successful. They it just, it'll be something different. You know, um, the, um, what is it? Uh, I guess um, a caricature. You could say, well, climbing gyms could turn into parkour, you know, and I hate that analogy because it's, at the same time, it's mildly insulting to parkour. It's like, you know, <laughs> way better than we are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like, well, parkour is like the, the dumbed down version or ninja, you know, ninja warrior. Um, and 
I think it, it is possible, you know, climbing gyms. Um, um, yeah, climbing gyms could, you know, become um, something very different. And, and, and um, the, the sport or the activity of climbing as maybe you and I understand it today wouldn't be at the heart of it anymore. You know, it would, there would still be move, some form of movement involved and challenge would be presented in some way, but those ways would not be faithful to what we believe in, in, in climbing. So it would be different. And, you know, I practice daily thinking, well, maybe that's okay. It doesn't have to be my vision of climbing that moves us forward and for all intents and purposes, rocks will continue to exist. So as long as I'm here, I will still be able to go out and do the things that I'm interested in. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, and then climbing gyms will just go a direction that's not in line with my philosophy. And But while I'm in it, I'm going to fight for climbing to stay, you know, as attached to the vision of rock climbing that I have. Um, without that being a closed thing, I try and stay open to all the different things that are happening outside. Um, and you know, I want climbing to continue to grow and evolve and change and it doesn't have to be fixed in, you know, my vision of Bukes in the eighties or, you know, what happened in Seyus in the nineties and that's the end all of climbing. No, it was a chapter and we move on to the next one. And, um, and you take a piece from it, you take a piece from your knowledge of that chapter and you apply it forward and you say, Oh man, I'm. I climbed this and all of a sudden you're going to have a moment and you're going to say, Oh man, I remember I climbed this route and it had this move. And I think I can reproduce that because, you know, it resonated with me in some way. And your, you know, your experience of climbing in that area at that time is going to evoke that memory of that movement. And you're going to be able to try and share it with somebody else. And uh, I think that's super relevant that you're, you are first and foremost, a climber and that your knowledge of, the movement that exists in nature is what sort of fuels that desire to create movement in a climbing gym. And you have adapted to be able to set sort of things that you don't normally see outside. So we don't see a lot of sort of cross-handed, you know, run and jump Gaston Danos outside, but you'll see elements of that outside. You will see elements of shady footwork. You will see elements of dynamic movement. You will see elements of you know, inside out, upside down, you know, thumb underclings that you can then reproduce in some way. And um, I, I think that your the ability to, and I mean, you specifically and other root setters, your ability to take a movement and take a piece out of it and make it still relevant is very interesting because it's not, I mean, I think, and I use my own example because I'm a terrible root setter and I'm someone who's been climbing for a long, I've climbed like I have a vast experience and knowledge of movement and I can't seem to be able to reproduce anything other than like jump to two pitches. <laughs> so it's not, um, it's not inherent in everybody that climbing and experience and movement translates to the ability to pull the relevant bits of information to create root setting indoors. And is that teachable? when you teach your clinics to people, your root setting clinics, is that a, are these things that are teachable or do you work with people sort of the, what you, they show you and you, you know, steward them through the current age of root setting? 
yeah, I think it's teachable. I think when you teach a creative discipline, the important thing to understand is um, everybody's going to put their spin on something. So, you know, when you teach an idea, what you want people to do is understand it in the way that, um, that you're explaining it. They, they grasp and are able to apply the ideas that you're trying to communicate. But then you also want, I'm also most interested in like how those people reinterpret them and or even challenge them with, you know, a better or different idea. So it's, I think like a lot of teaching, it's, it's not a linear process, you know, it's not like there are absolute rules like mathematics or physics and you just have to learn them and that's how the world works. No, there's a lot of wiggle room and there's a lot of, um, and um, I've had the privilege of teaching a lot of root setters and every time I'm surprised and impressed with some of the questions that I get or the outcomes of an idea that I had and how it's either interpreted or applied and how that ends up producing cool climbing, you know? And that's the interesting part is at the end of the day, if we end up with good climbing, we're, we're in a nice place, you know? And so, and then I get to learn things too. Mm -hmm. So when you remove the ego of, of saying that, look, I, I have all the answers and I'm going to, you know, take some of that information and, you know, send it down to you so that you can grow a little bit, but I'm going to remain, you know, the, the source of knowledge in this area. That's not the way to teach something that needs to be as broad and as, you know, growth oriented as root setting is you have to listen to that feedback. I think that's awesome that, I mean, I think it's awesome that you approach teaching with the mindset that you are also going to learn something from it. Um, and it's not by accident if you're looking for it, you know, and you're looking for other people's ideas. And as you say, their interpretations of what, you know, the way you explained it, then you might a little checkbox. And it's just one more thing that you get to put in your root setting bag of tricks, which is, I mean, by this point, it's, I mean, it's huge. I remember, I remember watching you, um, and it's not like it changed anything other than it was like, this is what clever people do is in, in between rounds, you took a big volume off and there was a smaller volume underneath for the next round already. And I was like, that's genius. It doesn't, it's irrelevant to the difficulty of the boulder or anything other than if you didn't see the process of stripping and resetting that you may have saved 20 minutes worth of time by putting that volume up first and putting a big one over top of it. And it's a, it's a weird example, but it stuck with me forever and ever and ever, because I think it's just, it, it underlines the way you approach the whole experience is that I've seen the maps, I've seen the spreadsheets, I've seen the post-it notes, I've seen all of that. And it's not something that you just sort of wing. <laughs> it's something that comes through practice and effort and that drive and passion. Mm -hmm. 10,000 hours, you know, um, yeah. I, I'm lucky to really enjoy my job. It's not everybody's case, but I'm really passionate about what I do. Um, and I love my job, but it's still a job. There's days when it sucks. There's days when it's hard. Um, root setting is physically quite draining. Um, and the root setting I've done has involved a lot of traveling. So working with jet lag, you know, being far from my family, um, lots of different challenges. So, 
but I'm lucky because I wake up in some hotel room in some country kind of jet lagged and dazed and be like, oh, I get to do this thing that I love today. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I try and try and enjoy it. And, um, and I guess the reason I try and keep a growth mindset to it is because I'd like to do it for as long as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And there's no reason not to, because as you say, you don't have to be climbing V15 to be putting up good boulders at all grade ranges. You just need to maintain that thirst for movement knowledge. I think, yeah, as long as I feel like um, the climbing I'm setting is, has value for the people who are climbing it, then I will try and continue to do it. Uh, but we'll see. Who knows? Climbing might change and I might, I might, uh, I might expire. <laughs> might just become like no longer relevant climbers are all six foot three and sorry but none of you can do anything anymore yep and i'm already okay with that um i i think it's it's i acknowledge that i've had an amazing career already as a root setter without even really trying you know like i didn't aim for this but, you know, I've had the privilege of training, you know, setting boulders in training for the Japanese team um, at multiple times, the French team. I've traveled to Chile to set an amazing competition. I've set world championships. I've set multiple World Cups. I've set nationals in so many countries. Like, I am so lucky among root setters that if somebody came to me tomorrow and said, your career is over now, I hope it's not for injury, but, you know, that's it, you're done and you're going to be, I'd be like, okay. And you know, so I'm gonna try and keep doing it cause I love it and I, I'm not doing it for the accolades and I'm not doing it for the, I do it cause I really, really love it. But I'm also like, okay, this is pretty cool already. So. I, I absolutely agree with that. Um, that you, you recognize that you are in a position that not everybody gets no matter what their career is to do something that you truly love. And the, yeah, it's hard to, to be in a city for four days. Mm-hmm. Uh, people are like, Oh, you must explore so much. I'm like, well, I arrive on Friday mm-hmm. and I go home on Sunday. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I saw the inside of a climbing gym. Mm-hmm. That was cool. Yeah. But you, you have been able to experience root setting all over the place. And is there, I mean, I think people would expect that there are regional styles. Is that a truism to you? Do, you know, is it something that you notice that when you go and set in Japan and you go, you know, kick around in some climbing gyms, is there a fundamental difference in style or is that a bit of a misnomer? I mean, so I've been making a very conscious effort um, throughout this whole conversation to not make any food analogies. Maybe and now you're going to. We did makeup. We did uh, what? Music. Design and other things. I'm going to try and keep doing that. But uh, yes, of course, there's differences. And those differences are cultural ones. You know, when you travel to different places, people are different. How they view climbing is slightly different. Um, so yes, and in a way, in the most positive way possible, it's a great thing, you know. Um, it's another privilege that I've had and makes my job, you know, people say, oh, you're a great root setter. And uh, like, it's a strange thing, you know, it's for me, it's like, no, 
somebody in Singapore taught me this move. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, there's a friend, Irwan. Hi, Irwan. Uh, he taught me the Singapore swing, and we tried to set this boulder in uh, in a in a comp, and it comes up. You know, I tell people about this. Oh, you know, in this comp in in like five six years, maybe 2011 or something. I can't remember exactly. And he and I spent a bunch of time trying to create a specific move to happen, and and it got labeled that way. And then, um, you know a different place, a different idea came. And it's like, oh, how did you get all these ideas? It wasn't just me, you know? I had the privilege of traveling and being exposed to all these people and them sharing little fragments and they all get, you know, crystallized around me. And so I collect that, you know, I embrace that. And I always try and give credit to, you know, the people who helped me get to where I am and um, who, help me find those original ideas. And so that difference, yeah, I think is, yes, it exists, the difference when you travel. Um, and I think that's to this day still why people travel. As climbers, like, yeah, the rock in Japan is different, probably. I don't know, I didn't climb on any of it. <laughs> you didn't get a chance to climb on any of it? You're like, well, you've been there a dozen <laughs> times. But, you know, uh, climbing in the north of Spain or the south of France is one thing. And then climbing on the west coast of Washington or in BC or in, you know, all these places. are. Um, um, that's why we do it, because there are differences. If it was the same, it would be uninteresting. Um, and again, it goes along with all the, the other differences when you go to a new country different language, a different culture. You learn about weird expressions that people say or food, you know, uh, different music that people listen to. And that enriches us and opens us and expands our, our perspective of the world, of our own lives, of, you know, how we do things. And that's cool. Yeah. As you say, like that expression you use, that the, these ideas that other people bring you know, crystallized on you. And I would say that to some people, you're a bit of a lightning rod for root setting because you've then, because you've become this constant in some way, you become like a sought after root setter. That climber that you worked with or that root setter that you worked with in a little gym in Sweden isn't going to get that exposure, but his idea travels through you to someone else in another gym somewhere else. And that growth does happen. And as you say, you, you travel and you meet the people and you talk about, you know, what they do and the music that they like and the food that they eat. No. Drink, drink. Uh, <laughs> and you get that experience. And I, I think I remember um, before I had traveled to climb um, that you were probably the most traveled person I had met at the time. And the, the, the stories that you told about the trips that you'd been on was a, something that sparked something in me that made me want to go and climb and travel somewhere else. And I think that we have a responsibility to share those experiences with people and get them interested in more you know, and whatever they want climbing to be for them is to say, to take the time to say, yeah, you know, I did go to this place. I, I was from here. This is what I've experienced. And it was awesome. And, and explain it out and not be like, yeah, and it was pretty cool and, you know, whatever. But the fact that you take the time to show people the passion about what you're interested in is why it grows. 
is why the community grows, is why the culture grows. Um, and people asking questions is important too, because you don't always want to just sort of stand and preach to people because they don't take it in very well. So having that, you know, let's sit down and go and have a coffee and let's sit down and truly have a conversation and, and say, oh, I get it. I know where you're from. And this, the fact that you were born here or grew up here or, you know, your first climbing experience shaped you in this way or that way, that's really important. And we can learn so much from each other. And it's, uh, it's a gift, I think, to be able to explain that to people and, and watch their passion for something grow. And I mean, the, that's the reason why I like to coach. And I'm, you know, I'm assuming that's one of the reasons that you like to, to teach courses is because you get to see that in people. You know, sitting in front of you having light bulb moments that might keep them in the sport for another 10 years. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the light bulb moments are cool and how different they are is also cool. You know, it's not like I'm again, sitting there waiting for them to get the thing that I get, they get an idea and I'm like, Oh, that's what you understood. Wow. That's cool. Mm-hmm. And, that's, that's definitely one of the, the super motivating things about other people. It's as simple as that, you know, it's, uh, I think climbing in general traces uh, connections between us, you know, um, and making climbing is a way to create channels for those connections to happen. That's maybe as meta as I can make it. <laughs> that's, that's pretty good, actually. That's, uh, I'm not gonna expand on that. I and mean, that's as, that just sits, that's really. You have set for local comps and you have set for world championships. Um, you have been in some way responsible for people's success and failure in those events. The, there must be a significant amount of pressure that comes along with being the chief to set for comps of that magnitude where the results have repercussions? Um, Yes and no, because um, there's a very sort of tricky question that remains to be resolved uh, fully, at least for me, is to what is, um, maybe it's, it's a question that revolves around fairness maybe. If climbs are made by human beings who by definition are fallible, then how, uh, how can something be fair, you know? And if that, those boulders are then being used to evaluate who's the best climber on a given day, how is someone not at an advantage or a disadvantage on that day? So I actually like the fact that it's actually not a black and white answer probably it's like fuzzy and things are interconnected and so many elements play into it who's the chief who's in the setting team and what ideas and styles are they going to bring um and then you know there's other things what is the temperature in the in the climbing gym uh what is the uh you know how old are, are they brand new holds or old holds are you know those are factors that will contribute to then the performance of the athletes who has jet lag, who doesn't, who's fresh, who's trained, who feels good that day, who doesn't. And when you, by the time you've multiplied all of those things together, I think it's very difficult to say, oh, well, the route set us through the competition because they did this or that, or, you know, this, um, but they are factors, you know, it's not like it's completely neutral. 
But it's interesting because there is this sort of really um, unfortunate armchair prevalence to say, wow, the root setting wasn't very good. Because Which sometimes can be true, <laughs> you know. Um, fair point. Fair point. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it is true, but it shouldn't be people's default. Um, people should consider all these factors that you have mentioned. Is that you're you're talking about individual athletics? I mean, if they're in their armchair, no, they don't. They don't have to. The same way, like people who watch a football game and who are like complaining that the coach is not doing their job, and come on, really, like you call that a kick? No, they're entitled to that. As sports fans, they're allowed to make commentary on, you know, this experience and emotion that they're living in. Um, the armchair is not the place to have that conversation. And for me, criticism that comes from the armchair, I'm like, yeah, sure, that's your, you know, uh, if that's how you engage in this, fine, I'll take that hit. I, I don't mind. Um, because the reality, I think the conversation that's more interesting for me is the one maybe with the athletes, you know, how they experience the round and what they perceive of, you know, well, every boulder had a dual text put on it. And that's a little, you know, exhausting. And it's just like not the most fun thing to be challenged on all the time. And it's because it's repetitive. It's just not, you know. Um, so let me ask you a question sort of in the, on the tail of that is how often do you debrief with the athletes after a round that isn't sort of just in the pub? Um, so in, in competitions, almost never. Um, and that's probably healthy. I think that's not necessarily the place. Um, again, um, I, I believe that, uh, Climbing competitions, uh, maybe more than anyway, amplify the emotional experience of anything. Um, failing at the last move of a boulder is disheartening in the gym. But when you do it with somebody judging you and in front of an audience, I think that can be how you experience it can be terribly, terribly negative, even if it isn't. Um, and so, you know, the, the coming off, out of a round of competition straight into feedback about, you know, what the root setting was usually they're talking about what their experience going through that round was and it's not very objective um and it depends on the climates like some people have the ability to be very objective and take a step back from what happened to them internally others don't i don't think it's the most productive time to have that conversation um you imagine after, after they finish their fourth boulder there's a little chair and you get to sit there like so what did you think of the round with a microphone in your face <laughs> you might get punched out more than yeah. more than you think exactly so um i it happens a bit more frequently in in training camps i think uh there's a bit more opportunity to step back and have conversations and to work on the process of um, managing those emotions and um, but I think there's still probably there would be value in creating more opportunities for that interaction more conversations about you know rounds between the setters this is what we tried to do this is why this is how and the climbers well this is what it felt like and this is you know this is what I liked actually and I would have wanted more of this that you apparently didn't want to do anyway I, um, but at the end of the day our job is not to, especially in competitions, is, you know, uh, Percy Bishton said this best, our job is not to be nice, you know, we're there to figure out who's the best climber, 
And in order to do that, we have an arsenal of options. Um, arsenal. I chose my word specifically. Mm -hmm. And yeah, we ask four or five questions. Can you stand on this foot? Can you jump to this hold? Can you do all these moves in a row? Can you, and the person who can give the best answers to all those questions will win the competition. And we, the, the, the incredibly unique thing about climbing is how different those questions can be from round to round. And that's pretty, like the variability in climbing is, I don't know any sport that is man-made where it's not like waves or the wind or, you know, natural elements that we have no control over that has that element of variability. Um, and to get back to the pressure question, sure, there's a lot of pressure. There's pressure to do a good job to make sure that um, you, you're creating a fair, as fair an opportunity as you can for the best climber that day to express their climbing. Um, and ideally, my dream scenario is that that person wins knowing that all the climbers who they beat we're also doing their best. Mm -hmm. That's the best case scenario. You know you won because, and ideally, that would be extremely easy to identify when you watch the show. That's the, you know, for me, the perfect competition. That's what I'm going for every time. Um, <clears throat> it's hard to do because climbers are good at a lot of things. Um, it's getting harder and harder to surprise them. And... Um, as far as pressure with experience, one of the things that I've learned is there is actually only a certain number of things we can control as a setter. We don't decide the outcome of the competition. So there is a point at which, you know, you push the boat out to sea and you can just sit there and watch and wait. And you're not, you know, sure you pushed it in a certain direction with a certain amount of momentum, but that's as much responsibility as you can take. You can say, yes, I pushed too hard that was too much for that round or, um, but it doesn't mean that everything that happened on the trip that boat took afterwards is entirely your fault because actually the people who were on the boat are different people. You were standing on the shore, just watching and waiting. And, you know, you designed the ship, you just pushed it out. Now it's, so there is an element. And I think it's an important one to be able to manage the stress in the job to acknowledge, well, you know, you, the head judge comes and asks you, are you ready? Can we start? And when you say yes, you're accepting that I am choosing all the choices that we've made until now are the ones I'm choosing to present and I hope they're okay. And sure, we could spend hours discussing and tweaking and more. Would they be more right? We won't know until people climb. So um, I enjoy that part now. I try and be like, okay, well, you know, it's, it's, there's a gamble to a certain extent, which is, um, partly scary because you're like not in control of something that you built. Um, and also partly, uh, very, very important because I never want to get to the point where I can control every outcome of competition. I want to be also a spectator and also like, wow, you won the competition. That was amazing. I had no idea, you know, there's so much in your control because you are building the stadium in which the sport is being, you know, um, carried out on that given day, but it's the same stadium for everybody. And as you say, um, 
I think the flip side of saying that climbers are very, very good is that sometimes they're very, very bad mm-hmm. on one day or on one thing or one person or the favorite. I think there, there's definitely a reason why. <laughs> and that's not on me. No. It's not, my no, not at all. <laughs> You're like, wow, man, literally everybody that foreran this boulder did that move. And then you six idiots didn't. Um, you know, that's on you. And that's, I mean, we could talk about the crack boulder in, from the World Cup last year where, I mean, it is basically a five nine move in a world mm-hmm. cup final that mm-hmm. nobody did. So sometimes they surprise you by what they're not good at. And yeah. I think the way you frame that as that you are asking questions of the climbers, can you do this? Can you do that? And then you strung them together across three rounds. And what you're getting is you're just distilling down in this environment, in the shape of this gym, in these angles, in this humidity, with the pressure of what's on the line for you as an athlete, home crowd, not home crowd, you just, there's so many things that you layer on that, I mean, you would go insane if you try to take responsibility for the weather, you know? So yeah. you, you create the stadium. And then as you say, you get to watch and say, and maybe I'm going to get surprised too. And there have been climbers who dominate through world cups. And I mean, maybe no one as much as uh, Yanya in, in the last sort of year, but there's a reason why if you look at all the podiums across the last, you know, 10 years of world cups that it, there are always different names in that top three, top five, top 10, because it's the day it's the movement. It's the person it's the day. It's sometimes even, you know, people rise to the occasion. People will come across a round where every move is something that they're exceptionally good at. Yep. And it's, it's wonderful that you get to, that you've come to a place where you are comfortable saying there's only so much we can do. And my job is to create the experience. And then, you know, as you say, push the boat out and just say, what are you going to do with this thing that I've given you? How are you going to answer the questions? How are you going to come to play today? And people who are not that familiar with competition climbing and, you know, I've, I've had some of these conversations over the years is you can't, I mean, even if you sort of said, imagine you just huddled a bunch of hundred meter climbers or hundred meter sprinters in the middle of a field and, and, and had like a bunch of different finish lines and some was grass and some was gravel and some had hurdles and some didn't, um, that you, you can't compare competition bouldering, competition climbing to almost any other sport for that reason, because it's different every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and one day you might be like, Oh, you know, I'm, I mean, if you look at tennis, I think tennis is a good example. People who are really good at clay aren't going to win hardcore tournaments. People who are really good at grass don't necessarily win clay other than the exceptional, the best of the best. Mm-hmm. But the environment changing forces a different set of skill sets and climbing is like that. Not just every comp, every boulder mm-hmm. in every round. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, it's an it's an evolution across that event every time and I think people sometimes forget that they will watch the final and they remember the boulder or they remember the boulder that nobody topped but they forget that what you've done is you've basically you know shepherded people through an entire weekend or an entire week's worth of boulders mm-hmm. and it's not about one if you had to I mean I can't imagine okay so world championships is one boulder everyone go the pressure would be completely different that would be very different. Yeah. And yeah, like multiple boulders, you take more risk on one and you'll play safer on another. That's another way to manage it. Um, but 
yeah, it, it's, it's at the same time the challenge and it's at the same time that what makes it super interesting, you know? Um, um, and then another, there's almost another layer is that you ask these three or four questions and then those questions are generally grouped by trends, you know? And we've seen the, you know, very dynamic trends evolve over the past years. But, you know, if we fast rewind maybe 15, 20 years, it was about, you know, crimps and pulling and how hard you could, you know, how small a hold you could hang on to. So it, it's, and then, you know, the relationship between how people train in a certain country and how um, that fits in with the trends and why they're doing well or failing at, you know, a certain style. Um, even if those questions are, you know, very different, they're just still within a global trend. So, yeah, competition route setting is inher inherently stressful. Uh, there's time constraints, there's uh, result uh, deliverables, and um, yeah, like any event-based job, I think that's, it's just par, par for the course. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we need to apply that healthy level of respect to root setters that choose to set for competitions because they are stepping into that arena. They are putting their work in the spotlight and they're putting themselves out to be judged, whether they should be judged or not be judged, you know, irrelevant, but you are, you're making a decision to be part of the experience, even though you're in some ways behind the scenes, your work is front and center and not a lot of root setters it's hard to get them to like come up and on the mat and wave and they not everybody wants to they don't want to be like oh i built that one and john built that one yeah um, but we know that you built them so mm -hmm. you can't hide there's nowhere to hide mm -hmm. and i'm going to ask you if you had to give advice to somebody who was embarking on wanting to set for competitions what's that some of the most relevant advice that your experience has given you. Don't do it. <laughs> run away. <laughs> just run away. No, that's not true. I, it's just seemed like a funny thing to say. Uh, no, I, uh, um, I think the cool thing about competition route setting and the influence it has on indoor climbing is how um, stylistically you can influence, you know, um, what's happening. Uh, parkour boulders emerged, you know, on the competition scene, and we now see them in climbing gyms, even in moderate grades. So this sort of trickle-down effect is 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 there and is important. So I would tell you know setters to um, express themselves. I think it matters. Uh, it's really important to have a personal style and the trick is how do you express that through a team you know across five or six days of work where i like to see a competition when i'm like i see oh that person was the chief it had an influence it played into you know um and i think the great competition root setters we know of today um jackie percy uh among the newer ones, Roma, uh, Gen Hiroshima, uh, you know, all these people who are uh, influencing um, competition climbing, uh, you see the comp and you see the influence. You can feel something different is happening. And I think that's 
that's the mark of greatness. And it's, it's a hard thing to do when you're just one root set in a team of eight or 10, maybe. And, you know, you still manage to give a direction. Uh, it's like an art director where you're not controlling other people's work, but you're giving flavor, giving direction, you know, um, asking for things from them to get a certain result. So yeah, be, be, find your voice. I think it's the, I think that's excellent advice. And, you know, if, you, if you're looking for advice from someone who knows what they're talking about, it's right here. Um, in root setting only. In root. <laughs> the rest of my life, I don't know. Maybe, maybe. All good. Um, and I th because I think it's important, uh, how did you get introduced to climbing? What was your first experience with the sport? Um, so I grew up in Zimbabwe, um, until I was like 15. And when I was maybe 11 or 12, um, I was attending, uh, I attended the French school, uh, in Zimbabwe, which is an English speaking country. So it's a smaller school. And my, uh, main teacher, uh, was a climber. And I think it was, I overheard a conversation. He was talking about climbing and, um, maybe I asked a few questions and he asked me whether I wanted to try it. And I said, yes, you know? Um, and so how did it go? Uh, I guess, yeah, he just took me the local gym in Zimbabwe was uh, an abandoned quarry that was uh, just outside of town. And we went there, it was all top ropes. Nothing was bolted. It was a granite quarry. And um, some of the, a lot of the people who had, uh, went there were like foreigners uh, because climbing in Zimbabwe itself as a third world country was not really a, a pastime that much. And uh, people soloed like a lot of moderates. Uh, it wasn't very tall. It was maybe 10, 12 meters at most and um, or top roped. So that's what we did. Anchors were like these huge, um, metal bars that were just like banged into the ground above the, and we just like tie off onto those. And, uh, and a funny story is on my first day climbing, pretty sure it was first or second time climbing. Um, I got heat stroke. It was Africa. It was hot and I probably didn't drink enough. And then in combination with like the height and the, you know, the physical effort, I got to the top and I was just like, Whoa, and I had to be lowered. So that was, that's like one of my first memories of climbing is, you know, um, and another funny story is I, as a kid, I was really scrawny. I was tiny. I was this like twiggy little insect kid. So, so yeah, that's it. That's my, my start. And that was what solidified, Hey, I want to do this thing. You know, there's, there's something about this that speaks to me and it doesn't, your, everyone's first experience is um, individually their own. And some people had wonderful experiences and some people had really like kind of chassis first experiences. And, but you know, something about the sport sticks with you. I think the, maybe the best part of that story is sure. Like, you know, those were the events, but then the important one is the people that teacher um, is to this day, still one of my best friends. And I was best man at his wedding. So Again, you know, it's like, it's easy to focus on just the events and the rocks and the roots and, but, you know, the underlying and maybe more relevant part of that story is that, 
you know, the, the, the bond um, that uh, I, I forged in those events of discovering climbing um, are deeply connected to the people I was with. Um, and interestingly, uh, a lot of really good music that I listened to, I was introduced to by him as well. He was older than me, obviously. So, you know, he already had developed musical taste. Um, and yeah, it was, you know, he became a, a, a mentor, a father figure, uh, and, and really a friend, a very close friend uh, to this day. And that is absolutely like one of the core, one of the pillars really is that the people that we met and the people that you will meet because we share this experience of climbing and we then just allow ourselves to be influenced by people or we are more open to asking those questions because you've created this common ground immediately. Like, okay, this is, you know, maybe there's a little bit of trust in there. Maybe there isn't, maybe it's just that you find someone interesting or you trust their, um, you trust them out to keep you safe. And then you're just more open to what they bring to the table in terms of their experiences, in terms of their musical tastes culturally. Mm -hmm. And you are, if you're, if you're paying attention and you're open to it and you're listening and you ask the questions, then what climbing brings is that broad community. And it brings you people that have traveled and people that have lived other lives and people that have lived and experienced things that you can you know, relive. And I think we all know someone that's told a, like a really good climbing story or life story around the barbecue or the campfire or the table or the pub where everyone's just like, yeah, <laughs> like draw it out, man. I don't care. Lie a little bit, but this I'm invested in you and this story about this sport. And um, I think that's something that connects us. And, you know, there's there's reasons why we stay friends with people. And I can attribute a lot of my long term friends to climbing as well. And um, I wouldn't trade it. And that's why I feel I'm always pretty passionate about wanting people to like to get out there and experience it. And I tell people, I mean, there's no gatekeeping to climbing. I tell people all the time and they're like, oh, what if climbing gets too um, popular and you know, we should this and we should that. I'm like, I tell literally everybody, go climbing one time. If you love it, you love it. If you don't love it, that's fine. There's no yeah. pressure. There's no, you should like climbing. Yeah. Um, it's about experience the thing and see what it does for you. And then maybe you get to be part of the community. Maybe you climb once a week on Wednesdays Maybe you bowl on Tuesdays, maybe you climb on Wednesdays and you go for a beer after and that's all you ever do. And you are just as much a member of the community as the guy that climbs V14. Mm -hmm. you know? Because we are all, as soon as we leave the, you know, the crag or the gym, we are all back to being, you know, on even terrain again. And your experience sieging your first five nine is no different than someone's experience trying to do their first five fourteen or their fifteenth five fourteen. It's that's a fact. It's a fact. Yeah. Um man, I'm gonna ask you ten more questions. <laughs> it's a little list of questions. They're all simple answers. Okay. I'm asking everybody the same 10 questions. Okay. Um, and there are, uh, there's no yes or no's in here, but a little bit of general interest and a little okay. bit of knowledge. Okay? okay. I'll keep it short. We'll keep it short. What sport are you the best at besides climbing? Mm, I'm a one trick pony. Seriously. Like I can't kick a football straight. I can't put a basketball through a hoop. 
um, yeah, I, I really have spent all my time in climbing. Um, I can ride a skateboard kind of straight. That's maybe the closest one. Well, that's we'll take it. Um, do you prefer to go climbing out in the mountains or sort of out in the desert? Mm, out in the desert. Uh, what's your favorite thing that you cook for yourself? Oh my goodness. Vegetables. What is an odd fact about you that probably not a lot of people know? Whoa. Uh, an odd fact about me. Um, I've only ever had one cavity in my life. What? That counts. <laughs> Where's the, your favorite place you've traveled to? Or been? Favorite place you've been? I hate favorite questions. Uh, uh, my daughter asks me them all the time and I just tell her, well, today I feel like my favorite is Japan was really instrumental in both my career, my evolution, the friends I made. Um, I spoke to a good friend of mine from Japan yesterday and it just reminded me how much I love Japan. Um, I also went to Chile uh, last year for the first time. Um, South America is amazing. And yeah, that was, I know that's two answers, but that's what I'm giving. I'll take it. I'll take it. Um, you prefer to be out in the rain or out in the snow? Mm, out in the sun. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, those are relevant to me because I lived in Montreal for a few years and the snow was a problem. And now I live in Seattle and the rain is a problem. I guess because I came back to Seattle uh, from the snow, I will have to say the rain. Let us know what is something that you're really psyched on right now? Being at home, uh, cooking for my family is something I do in general, but I get to do it a bit more than usual these days. Uh, so that's fun. Like right now, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, when you're bored, what's your go-to boredom breaker? Um, these days, video games, PlayStation 4. Cool. Would you rather be the driver or would you rather be the passenger? Driver, for sure. Okay. Uh, what's a movie that makes you want to cry every time you watch it? Mm, Ratatouille. Really? Yeah. That's good. Uh, what profession would you love to try other than your own? Um, hmm. Well, cooking, maybe architecture's close second. Music could be in there too. Okay. Um, Tonde, wonderful to talk to you. I really appreciate your insight. I hope that anybody that watches this can take a few things away about you know, your approach and your view about climbing and its importance in you know, your life and the way that you can express that out to other people and hopefully enrich their climbing experiences as well and and how you say that climbing matters and it does matter and that's why we're here and that's why we're talking to people that have been in our community and have been involved in it and have seen its growth and have been a part of its growth so i really appreciate the time i mean i'm lucky to have you as a friend and you know i i, I really think that your insight is super valuable so i appreciate it thank you um i appreciate you and um 
yeah, thanks to if anyone has listened this far. Uh, thanks for listening. I hope uh, there was something interesting in there for you. And uh, yeah, let's do this again soon. <laughs>